0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcast, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're continuing our study of Matthew chapter 21 and we come to verses 18 through 32. Matthew 21 verses 18 through 32. This is the Word of God, so let's give careful attention. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree. But also, if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. Let us pray. God, our Father, Bring your word to us, for we need your word. We are hungry and we need to be fed. We are weak and we need to be strengthened. We are feeble in our faith and we need to be built up. We are fruitless and we need to be made fruitful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember the setting. Last week we saw how Jesus has entered Jerusalem in a very glorious way, declaring in every way possible that he is the son of David, he is the Messiah. And remember, then he goes directly into the temple and he cleanses, he throws out the money changers, accusing uh, the temple rulers of having turned it into a center for Jewish nationalistic uh, rebellion and so forth, rather than as a house of prayer for all nations. And this is, again, this is, a, this is kind of a, a, the first hint that... Uh, Israel as a whole as represented by the temple is not bearing the fruit that God is looking for. And remember behind all of this is Jesus' previous announcement way back in Matthew chapter 12 that one greater than the temple is here. When the, the leaders confronted Jesus and accused Him of breaking the Sabbath he basically said to them, I am the son of David, I am the Messiah, I am the Lord of rest, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in that context, he said to them, I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. <clears throat> and of course, he was referring to himself. Now, you couldn't say anything that was more earth-shaking to the Jews than that, because the temple was the very symbol of God. It was the symbol of God. It was the symbol of His presence. It was the symbol of God's Word, of God's redemption, His salvation of Israel. The temple was where God met with man. The temple was where heaven and earth met. It was therefore the center of the entire world. And so this idea that Jesus is greater than the temple, we see it being played out In chapter 21 here. And this concept that Jesus is greater than the temple, greater than this physical temple, it can only be true because of the deeper truth that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the one that the physical temple, the great, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the great temple of Solomon, and now this magnificent temple of Herod, it's what it stood for. It stood for Jesus, who is the true temple of God. And this is something that was prefigured very early on in the life of Jesus. In fact, when he was an infant. You remember in the Christmas story of the wise men traveling to come to uh, worship the one who is born king of the Jews. And of course, in our translations, it talks about the star and we... We have all these different theories and and so forth about the star. But if you remember, when we studied this, saw this is a very unusual star. This is a star that we're expressly told it disappeared when the wise men arrived at Jerusalem. And then after they met with Herod, the star reappeared. The star not only reappears, but it travels down a road leading them to Bethlehem, and then we're told that the star went and stood over the house where Jesus was. Well, this is not a normal star. Well, the Greek word for star just means a bright object in the sky, and when you look at all the behavioral patterns here, what we're really talking about is the pillar of fire, the glory cloud that was again and again signified the presence of God in the Old Testament. And of course Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that it was the pre-incarnate Jesus who was with Israel in the wilderness. It was the pre-incarnate Jesus who stood on the rock in the glory cloud before Moses when Moses struck the rock and it gave forth the water. It was was, uh, Jesus, we're told, in Hebrews chapter 12 who was on the mount, who was on Mount Sinai with Moses giving the law. And so here is the glory cloud, the glory cloud that has filled the temple in the Old Testament who are leading the wise men, these Gentile wise men, to come worship Israel's Messiah because Israel's Messiah, according to all the prophecies, is not just the king of Israel. He is the Lord of the world. And so here is this glory cloud which filled the tabernacle, which filled the temple, which dwelt in the holiest of holies, the glory cloud there which in the Old Testament would strike anyone dead if they sought to come into the holiest of holies, except for the high priest on the day of atonement only. That glory cloud that filled the temple, the glory cloud that made God so glorious that the Jews by time of the first century won't even say God's name. They just say the Lord instead of saying Yahweh or Jehovah. They won't mention his name. This is the glory cloud that's going to the house where the infant Jesus is and dwelling over it. Now what is being said here? What is being said is, Jesus is the new temple. See, the glory cloud doesn't lead these wise men to Herod's temple. This glory cloud leads the wise men away from Herod's temple, away from Jerusalem, out to Bethlehem, to the place where Jesus is. And the statement is very powerful. This is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple of God. Jesus is where God and man meet. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the center of the world. Jesus is where you go to confess your sins. Jesus is where you go to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is where you go to pray to God. Jesus is where you go to receive God's blessing. That is the message throughout, and that is certainly the message when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. Because He goes straight to the temple, and He starts acting like He owns the place. Because He does. Because He is the temple. And that is the entire point. He is the temple. He is God the Son incarnate. And the question now is, will His people, will the covenant people who have spent centuries being prepared for this moment, will they recognize it? Will they receive Him? Or will they reject Him? Will they cling to the old temple, which is a symbol Will they cling to it and say, we like what we have. We like what we have if you would just give us a good political leader and a good military leader who can affirm and fan the flame our Jewish pride so that we, and not the Romans, may be over the nations. If you could just do that for us, we're good. Or will they realize that Jesus is the one? He is the Christ. And he is bringing forth a kingdom which is not like the kingdoms of the world. A kingdom which transforms people from the inside out. A kingdom which transforms the whole way of doing kingdom. Well, the answer is that the great majority of God's people, the great majority of the Jews, and especially the leadership, will cling to the old and they will reject Jesus. In Jesus' letters in Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor, he will twice refer to what he calls the synagogue of Satan and to those who say they are Jews but are not. You see, with the coming of the Son of God in the flesh, when the coming of the true temple of God, where God and man meet, God's people are naturally redefined by the true temple now. God's people are naturally redefined around Jesus. Just like God's people were redefined around Moses, who was a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Just like God's people were redefined around David, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. So now the real thing, the one to whom everything in the Old Testament pointed is here, So, of course, God's people will be redefined around Him. And so that's why Jesus is saying, those who have the outward status of being God's people, but who reject the one who defines God's people, He says they're not really Jews. They're Jews outwardly, but they're not really Jews. He says synagogues and churches who, who teach that clinging to the old and rejecting the Messiah, rejecting Jesus... He says they're not really synagogues of God. They are synagogues of Satan. They are Jews in name only. Now Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 2. He says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Now Jesus knows that the great majority and especially the leadership are going to cling to the old and they're going to reject him and so he has foretold this three times already you remember that three times he has told them we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man is going to be rejected and he's going to be arrested and he's going to be scourged and mocked and beaten and he's going to be crucified and the third day he will rise again Now. All of this, this coming rejection, is why Jesus has pronounced doom upon the temple and all who cling to it. Just like Jeremiah in the Old Testament pronounced doom upon the temple and all who clung to it at that time. Jeremiah prophesied in the days leading up to the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem when they would destroy the city and destroy the temple. And he kept warning the people, stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, we're God's people. We're God's people, so He has to be good to us. We're better than the Babylonians, so He has to be good to us. It doesn't matter if we're not bearing the fruit that we should bear to God. We're better than they are. God has to be good to us. There's His temple. Look at it. He he has to protect it. Jeremiah says, stop saying that. Stop saying that. God's house can become so filthy by the sins of His people that He refuses to live there anymore. He condemns it. It's not fit to leave in. He leaves. When God is dwelling in His house, and remember His real house is His people, when God is dwelling in His house, there is nothing that can threaten the house of the Lord when He is dwelling there. But when God moves out, there's nothing that can protect it. There's nothing that can protect it. And this is what was happening in Jeremiah's day. But Jeremiah promised that God was going to do something new. And that new thing was the new covenant. Where God's laws, where His his law of love was no longer outward on stones for most of His people... It was going to be written by the Spirit on the heart, by the finger of God. And so Jesus, the new and greater Jeremiah, pronounces doom on the temple in the first century. And yet, like Jeremiah, he foretells something new that God is going to do. And that new thing is the new thing that Jeremiah talked about, the new covenant, which Jesus is not just going to talk about, He's going to bring it to pass. That's the backdrop to everything that's happening here in Matthew 21. Now this situation in our text today in Matthew 21 is heavy with irony. Remember last week I told you about how when David had come to siege uh, and seize Jerusalem, which was held by the Jebusites, the pagan Jebusites had taunted David, saying that even the blind and the lame could repel David from taking Jerusalem. So after David took Jerusalem, the saying went out that the blind and the lame are not allowed here. Of course, the blind and the lame really meant the Jebusites. But it came to be applied literally over the centuries so that the blind and the lame could not come into the temple. But with Jesus' entry to the temple, remember the blind and the lame are coming to him there and they are being healed. On the other hand, who is Jesus casting out? He's casting out the temple establishment. The blind and the lame are coming to Him in the temple and being healed. The temple establishment He is driving out. Notice what Jesus is saying by His behavior. The true blind and the lame, the true Jebusites, who oppose the son of David and who therefore will not be allowed in the temple are the leaders of Israel. It has nothing to do with being physically blind and lame. It has to do with being spiritually blind and lame and unwilling to do anything about it. They're the Jebusites. They're the ones who are not allowed in the temple. And now our text today picks up with the following day. You remember he left the city and stayed outside on the outskirts. Now in our text today he's coming back into the city. And the first thing he's going to do is put an exclamation point on his pronouncement of doom on the temple. So while traveling back to the city, he sees a fig tree, which he curses because it is fruitless. It has leaves. It looks like it ought to have fruit, but it doesn't have fruit. And so he curses it. And this fig tree incident mirrors the cleansing of the temple, and it really makes the same point. "...the fruit which should be there isn't." So Jesus declares that it will be forever barren, thus condemning it to destruction. That's in verse 19. Now Jesus here is enacting the truth about Israel. The fruit that Israel should have been bearing to God is not there. Israel, like this fig tree, has nothing but foliage. Now Israel has glorious foliage... She has all the heritage of the Word of God. She's been entrusted with the oracles of God. She's had all the prophets. She has all the promises. She has the temple. She has all of these things. She has foliage galore. The problem is she doesn't have any fruit. So the foliage on this fig tree... Turns out that it simply advertises what should be there but isn't. So it's worse than having nothing. Jesus doesn't curse a fig tree that has nothing. He curses a fig tree that's full of leaves but has no fruit. He curses a hypocritical fig tree, in other words. Lots of foliage, no fruit. And so Jesus curses this fig tree with a severe curse. He says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. know, that almost seems like overkill. It almost seems harsh. But you have to remember the background here to what is going on. Background, we have many passages in the Old Testament which talk about the, the Israel as God's fig tree or His olive tree or Israel as God's vineyard. One of the richest ones appears in Isaiah chapter 5. And this really gives us the background. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 5. This is what God says there. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a a winepress in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge." In other words, I will take away its walls and it shall be burned and I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down and I will lay it waste. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, Isaiah is writing in the days that are leading up, in fact, years before the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the temple. But that's what he's talking about years ahead of time. He's talking about the same period of time that, uh, that Jeremiah would be talking about. At that time, God could say, what more could be done for my people? What more could I give them? What more could I do for them? I have done everything for this vineyard that could be done for this vineyard. And it's not producing grapes that are coming from me. It's producing wild grapes. Its fruit is from some other root. Its fruit is from some other God. Its fruit is from some other faith. Its fruit is from some other value system, some other way of life. Its fruit is not coming from me. And so God destroyed his vineyard through the Babylonians. Now, if this is what he said in the days of Isaiah. How much more is that now true in the first century? With the only generation of God's people who could do what they did. Reject the Son. Every generation of God's people could reject His Word, could reject His prophets, could kill His prophets. But this is the only one that could do what they did which is to reject the son remember the parable that Jesus uh, told in Luke chapter 13 he says a certain man had a fig tree and planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none then he said to the keeper of his vineyard look for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none cut it down Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And then if it does not bear fruit, you can dig it up. Well, this is actually what Jesus does for 40 years after he curses this fig tree in our text. For 40 years after the events of our text, Jesus, through the apostles and the first generation church, will continue to water and to feed the fig tree, which is Israel. For 40 years, Jesus will return looking for fruit before he will finally cut it down in 70 AD. And so we see that Jesus is, in fact, very long suffering and merciful. So the cursing of the fig tree here is another pronouncement of doom on Jerusalem and the temple. And this is the context for Jesus' promise in our text regarding the prayers of the disciple. This is not a general promise about the power of prayer, which is the way we normally take it. Oh, if you say this to that, it'll happen. If you say to this car be plucked up and thrown into the lake, that will happen if you say it and you believe it. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Notice what the disciples marvel at. They marvel, verse 20, with how quickly the fig tree withered. All right? And they ask about it how did it wither away so soon? It doesn't wither away in a a week or a few days or even in a day. It withers away right in front of them as they're looking. And that's what they're marveling at. Jesus is responding to their question, how did it wither away so quickly when he brings this up about prayer? And notice that he specifically says that if they have faith and do not doubt, they will do what was done to the fig tree. That's what they will do. That's the kind of prayers he's talking about here. He's talking about bringing judgment on apostate Jerusalem who continues to reject their testimony about the Christ. He says, God will answer your prayers because what's going to play out in the book of Acts is that after you have an initial response on the day of Pentecost with many Jews turning to Christ over time, the Jewish establishment is going to begin to persecute the church. Roman persecution will not begin until you get up into the mid-60s A.D. with Nero. All through the book of Acts, read, who is persecuting the church? It's not the Romans at that time. It's the Jewish establishment. It's the Jewish establishment starting out with Saul persecuting. They martyr Stephen, and it continues to build throughout the book of Acts. And Jesus is saying, this is what you're going to be facing, apostles. But I'm going to hear your prayer. Your prayer that God's judgment will come upon this persecuting apostate temple establishment, Jewish establishment, your prayers will be heard and God will bring his judgment upon apostate Jerusalem. That's what he's saying to them. And that's also what is meant in the next phrase in verse 21 where Jesus says that they will also say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and it will be done. This mountain, what mountain is he talking about? The one right next to them, the one that Jesus was just on yesterday, throwing people out, throwing the rulers out of the temple. That mountain, the Temple Mount. That's what he says. Not any mountain, this mountain. If you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, it will be done. Now you have to remember that in the Old Testament Jewish typology, which is the way the Jews thought, particularly when you're talking about the judgment of God coming historically, they would speak of it in what we call apocalyptic terms, which really means using Old Testament Jewish typology. In that typology, the sea was often used as a symbol for the Gentile nations, because you see the sea is dark, And the sea is wild, and the sea is uncontrollable, and it is full of teeming creatures and different monsters and so forth. And this bespeaks the Gentile nations. This speaks of them. One example I will give you is Isaiah 60, verse 5. Isaiah there is speaking of the coming glories of the kingdom of God, and he says there, The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, that is to say, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Okay, that's one example. Another one is in the book of Revelation. You read about the beast. The beast. Well, there's actually two beasts. Would you read very carefully? There's two beasts. One beast comes off the land. The other beast comes up out of the sea. What's he saying? He's saying that one of the beasts is Jewish and the other one is is Gentile. There's that Old Testament Jewish typology. Okay? On the other hand, in the Jewish typology, the earth or the land stood for Israel. It stood for God's people. Those who behave as true human beings should behave. At least that was supposed, that's supposed to be what Israel was to do. So casting the Temple Mount into the sea is a typological and apocalyptic way of referring to the temple coming under the power and tempest of the gentile nations which is exactly what will happen in 70 AD. So this is another warning of judgment and a promise that the disciples prayers of vindication from a persecuting temple establishment will be answered. Now with this backdrop Jesus returns again to the temple and he is teaching there when the rulers come and confront him. So Jesus is teaching the people in the temple. The true temple is teaching the the people in the temple. And what we're going to see for the rest of chapter 21 is that each constituent element of the leadership of Israel is going to come and oppose Jesus and try to trip him up so that they have a pretext to arrest him and to shut him up and to get rid of him. And the first leadership element to confront Jesus is identified as the chief priests and the elders. That is a way of referring to the official representatives of the Sanhedrin, which was the official ruling body of Israel. So these are representatives of the rulers. And so they don't ask Jesus about doctrine As the Sadducees and the Pharisees will, they ask Jesus about authority. This is what rulers are concerned with authority. And they want to know by what authority has Jesus done these things? By what authority has he come into Jerusalem the way he did? By what authority has he allowed children to proclaim him the son of David? By what authority has he come in and cleansed the temple? Thrown people out, and pronounce doom upon it. And they want to know who has given you this authority. Now, only one person would have greater authority in the temple than the high priests, and that is the Messiah. So the rulers here are basically asking Jesus to declare openly, "Are you the Messiah?" But they don't want to use that word. They don't want to use that word. So they ask Him simply, By what authority have you asserted power over the temple? And they're trying to come across in front of the people. Remember, the people are right there. They've chosen this because they want to put Jesus on the spot. They want the people to see what happens. And they're trying to come across in front of the people as humble and reasonable with God's interests and the spiritual interests of the people on their hearts and minds. But really, they are trying to bait Jesus into a trap. If they can get Jesus to openly declare in front of the people that He is the Messiah, and they can get Him to say that, they can seize control of the situation and silence Jesus by arresting Him for suspected blasphemy or insurrection. That's ultimately what they're going to condemn Him for. Well, Jesus actually takes the dilemma that they put him on and he turns it on the rulers by saying that he will happily answer their questions if they will answer his. Jesus' intent here is to change the issue from the contrived issue of the leaders to the real issue, which has to do with, their motives, what's in their heart, why are they opposing Jesus, and what is their real heart toward God. Those are the real issues. And so Jesus beautifully cuts right past their contrived concerns to the real issues at hand. And He asks them about John the Baptist. He asks them whether John's baptism was from heaven or from men. In other words, was John's ministry and preaching, was it of God, or was it just a human show? Having sought to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, the rulers now find themselves on one. If they say John's ministry was from God, they will convict themselves because they opposed John instead of following him. If they say John's ministry was not of God, they're going to lose all credibility with the people who widely regarded John as a prophet. But unlike the dilemma that the rulers sought to hang on Jesus, the dilemma Jesus hangs them on is not a contrivance. It's not just a tactical gimmick. It's not gamesmanship. It forces the rulers to face the real issue that they needed to face all along, all the way back to the days of John the Baptist. Why aren't they responding to God's word through John and now Jesus? Jesus, in fact, is giving them an opportunity to repent by causing them to to face the real issue. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. Well, you have to remember that every opportunity to repent is also an opportunity to not repent. Every opportunity to repent is also, by definition, an opportunity to double down in one's sin, to harden oneself yet again, and to turn even further away from God. Opportunities to repent, they don't allow you to stay where you are. Opportunities to repent are a fork in the road and they take you one way or the other. You're either going to turn toward God or you're going to turn further away. That's the nature. And that shows why God said in John chapter 3 through Jesus, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. And yet, Jesus the Son will end up condemning the world because the world's going to condemn itself. Because they're either going to respond to Jesus or they're going to turn away. That's the way it works. And so here, the, the, the rulers, unfortunately, they double down. They don't turn toward God. They turn further away. They refuse to answer Jesus. They're going to act like politicians. This is your opportunity, you slimy politicians. This is your opportunity to stop. This is your opportunity to turn. But they don't. And so they refuse to answer Jesus. And thus he refuses to answer them. And they have no grounds to continue. They end up now, once again, embarrassed in front of the people by trying to embarrass and catch Jesus. The rulers we see here ultimately are not concerned with the things of God. Even though they're religious, they're not concerned with the things of God. They are concerned ultimately with promoting their own agendas. They're concerned with preserving their own positions and their own power, even if the word and interests of God must be sacrificed. Remember when we were talking about the confession this morning, we read from the psalmist who said, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's what the rulers are doing here. Everybody has sin. Everybody has sin they need to confess. They're cherishing sin. They have a precious, and their precious is their position and their status and their prestige. They will happily receive a Messiah who comes and is one of their party, who furthers their position and their prestige even more. But a Messiah who comes uh, preaching repentance to them, and a forerunner, John, who comes preaching repentance to them, who does he think he is? Does he know who we are? That's the way they see it. And so they double down. This is deep hardness. This is deep hardness. And this is why Jesus is saying that Israel as she is, as symbolized by the temple, cannot remain. She must come under judgment. And never forget, never forget as all this is going on, that in the magnificent wisdom of God, Israel here is representing the world. She's representing the world in two ways. She's representing the world even in her rebellion and showing the world for all time the way sin really operates. And she's showing the world for all time. Don't believe these lies that Satan keeps telling you. Don't believe these lies that if you just had enough information, that if you could just discover enough truth, or if you could just change the environment, then man would be perfected. I mean, the world runs on this lie. We just need more information. We just need to discover more information, more facts. We just need to change the environment. We just need to give that child some riddlin We just need to change the environment. We just need to rehabilitate somebody. We just, you know, and so forth. Because obviously the problem couldn't be with us. It has to be with the environment. It has to be we don't have enough information. Education, that's what we need. Israel is the proof for all time that that's not the problem. Because Israel is the vineyard that God did everything for. He gave her all the information you could have. He gave her the perfect environment that you could have in a fallen world. And this is how mankind be- behaves under those circumstances apart from a changed heart by the Spirit of God. She wants to kill God. Kill Him. That's what the world wants to do. That question, oh, it's education, it's environment, that question has been settled forever And that is what Israel is showing. And yet, at the same time, Israel is providing the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You see, this is a picture of everybody here. And Jesus is saying, all of that. The temple just doesn't stand for apostate Israel in the first century. The temple then stood for this whole lie. This whole lie that we want to believe about the problem is not really with us. It's not a moral problem. It's not a personal problem between us and God. Oh, yes, it is. It is as personal as you can get. That system has to be destroyed forever. So Jesus tells the rulers a parable about two sons whose father asked them to go and work in his vineyard. So you see here Jesus is continuing with this theme of Israel as God's vineyard that's supposed to produce good fruit for Him. And sons working in the vineyard speaks of the leaders who are supposed to lead the people in such a way that they are shown the way of fruitfulness and they are encouraged in the way of fruitfulness. In response to the father, one son says that he won't obey the father. But then he ends up feeling bad about it, and he goes and obeys him. The second son says, yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir. I go, sir. Work in the vineyard, that's what I want to do. I'm there, dad. But he doesn't go. So we see that the second son is a picture of hypocrisy. Giving the father lip service, but having a hard heart underneath so that he doesn't really want to do the Father's will, and so he doesn't. The first son is a picture of repentance because he starts out with a rebellious heart. He refuses to obey, but later he's convicted about it. He feels bad about it and what he's done. And so he repents, he turns around, and he goes and obeys his Father. And Jesus puts it to the rulers. He doesn't tell them the answer to the, to the uh, parable. He asks them. Which son did the father's will? And they answer him rightfully. They know the truth. And in admitting the truth, they condemn themselves because they are the second son. They are the ones who are always talking up a big game of true religion. But they are not, in fact, obeying. So Jesus says to them, I declare to you harlots, and tax collectors will enter the kingdom before you do. Why? Because it's not a matter of status. It's not a matter of how together your life is. It's a matter of repentance, which everyone needs to do. Now, obviously, the perfect son would say, Sir, yes, sir. What you want, I want, and go work in the vineyard. But this is a fallen world. Nobody does that. This is a fallen world. You have people who say, sir, yes, sir, and then they don't go. And then you have people say, ain't doing it. Not happening. And then come under conviction and repent and they go do it. The difference is between those who repent and those who don't repent. And so those who repent, it doesn't matter if they're harlots. It doesn't matter if they're tax gatherers. It doesn't matter if they're cheats. It doesn't matter what they've done. What matters is do they repent? Do they turn? Do they turn? Those who don't repent, no matter what their status, no matter how knowledgeable they're supposed to be, no matter how much religion they know, these have not done the Father's will, and they will not enter the kingdom. And this shows us the very first fruit that God's people are supposed to bear for Him. The very first fruit, the first little fruit that a God is always looking for from the vineyard, which is us. And that is the fruit of repentance. Repentance, think about it. Repentance was the, was the central theme of John the Baptist preaching. It was the central theme of Jesus' preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the central theme of the preaching of the twelve in the Gospels when they were sent out. It's the central theme of the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost, the very first Christian sermon. It's the central theme of the glorified Christ to five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He's speaking to churches. Five of the seven, he says, repent of something. It is central to Jesus' summary of the gospel that is to go to the world. In Luke twenty-four forty-seven, Jesus says just before his ascension, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise again from the dead on the third day, that repentance and remission for sins be preached in His name to all nations. Repentance is always set forth as the path to forgiveness, and impenitence as the road to ruin. Notice that in a number of these passages, if we were writing these verses, we would substitute the word faith. We would say believe, because let's admit it, repentance to us as evangelicals makes us a little nervous because it sounds an awful lot like works. We have, anything we do sounds a lot like works. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I actually listened to an evangelistic message one time by a man who's unquestionably a Christian. Um even from in the Reformed tradition, Um, and is a great preacher, but was so concerned that anything we do or that we're called upon to do is works. We're adding to Christ that when He reached the end of His evangelistic message, talked about how insidious works are and how they come in in any way, He says, this is what I want you to do nothing. I want you to do nothing. Well, we just don't see that problem in the Bible. Many of these verses don't mention faith expressly. It doesn't say, believe, for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Jesus says, this is what you preach to the world. He doesn't say, believe and receive remission of sins. He says, repentance and remission of sins. Now, why is that? Isn't salvation by faith alone? You betcha. But faith and repentance are joined together in such a way that you can't do one without the other. If faith is turning toward Christ, and I think we would all agree on that, faith is turning to Christ, repentance simply means turning away from everything that is contrary to Christ. If faith is the part that is turning to Christ, repentance is the part that's turning away from everything that is contrary to Christ. Because repentance simply means to turn It simply means to turn. So you can't have true faith without turning to Christ, which means you can't have true faith without repentance and turning away from everything else. And what we have to see here in our text is that repentance is the difference between true faith and hypocritical faith. Repentance is the difference between true faith and hypocritical faith. And true faith is not something we're called upon to have once. True faith is something we're called upon to have every day and to walk in every day, which means the whole Christian life is a matter of always turning to Christ, always turning to Christ, which means you're turning away from everything that would turn you away from Christ. And we can see from the religious leaders here what a need that repentance is. Again, five of the seven churches... In Revelation, Jesus calls upon them to repent. In other words, turn to me. Turn to me anew. Turn to me afresh. It's pride that keeps anybody from repenting. It's pride. Just like you see with the rulers here. And what we need to recognize is that once we're Christians, the opportunity to be proud and to stop turning to Christ and to stop repenting, the opportunity to become offended, if we're called upon to repent, that opportunity doesn't go away because you see pride has a thousand faces. You talk about have it your way, the old Burger King slogan. Pride is the one that first came up with that slogan. Pride is the ultimate have it your way. Pride tailor makes itself individually for each one of us. And with the rulers, we can see pride of, of, and protectiveness toward their position and status and authority. With each one of us, it's something different. But pride, no matter what its face to each one of us, it always has the same result. Repentance is for others. That's the result. Pride always causes us to say, those people need to repent those people need to repent and we stop seeing how we need to repent now when I say we all need to repent I am not saying go home find something that you enjoy muster up some guilt about it and give it up Like. Kind of like a a lot of the church tends to do at Lent. Find something you enjoy and make yourself miserable, and then feel good about your repentance. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. You may need to repent of not enjoying things enough, you may need to repent of not resting in the salvation of Christ and understanding that He accepts you and receives you. That may be what you need to repent of. Other things you struggle with may be due to the fact that you've just got it in you that you have to perform for God to really love you. You have to perform. And you're not really resting in Christ. It may be that. I guarantee you, your pride is probably not going to be the first thing that you think about. The way it shows up in you is probably not going to be the first thing you think about. It's probably going to be something else. So true repentance simply means this. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ in everything. Turn to Him today. And the stuff that's pulling you away, turn away from that stuff. Turn away from it. I commend all these things to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.